July 28th, 2022. We're in Masechet Sanhedrin and Sadi Vav Amud Bet. If you count up from where the lines widen, it's six lines up, the last word on the line. The context, Nebuzaradan is in the Hechal. He um, has burnt it. He has destroyed the Mikdash. And he notices in the midst of all this, this blood which is bubbling and boiling somewhere over there. And he asks about it, and they lie to him. They say that was really just the blood of uh, leftover from one of the korbanot. It spilled. He realizes after comparing it to the blood of other animals, that's not what it is. He pushes the people, and they answer him. They say this is the blood of a kohen gadol, Zechariah, who was also a prophet of sorts, who told us that we are going to and we're up against exile, destruction of the mikdash. And the king of that time period, Yoash, had him killed which means that his prophecy is now being fulfilled with regards to the destruction of the Mikdash because we didn't repair our ways, we didn't get better, and it's for that reason that his blood is bubbling up. Now, Nebuzaradan, understanding this circumstance, realizes that's not exactly clear why he becomes obsessed with the blood, but maybe it's an opportunity to kill more lives. After all, if the blood is bubbling, it's, so to speak, this is the fulfillment of that prophecy. Until that blood stops boiling, well, it means that I can and perhaps should keep going. So I've destroyed the temple. I've destroyed uh, the uh, surrounding areas. I've killed people on the way. Maybe there's more people to kill. Amar Lehu says... Nebuzaradan to the people, to the Jewish people of that time period, again, as he destroyed the Mikdash. I will be mefayes, I'll appease the blood of this Zechariah. He brings he brings uh, scholars, and he kills them. Ilave means on top of it. Maybe it means right next to it. Maybe it means literally on top of the blood. So maybe by killing them, that'll appease Zechariah's blood and we'll see the end of its bubbling. In other words, that's the end of the fulfillment of this prophecy. And it doesn't, the blood doesn't rest. He brings young children who were studying in the Beit Midrash, kids from the school. He kills them on the blood as well. And the blood doesn't stop boiling and and boiling, uh, bubbling and boiling. He brings the young uh, um, Kohanim who are in training. Call them Pirhekehuna. The Gemara refers to them in several places. Uh, they played a role in the Mikdash. He brings them and he kills them as well on this blood. And you have to imagine the scene. There was just a little pool of blood and now there's blood everywhere. He's literally slaughtering people all with the mindset and the expressed intention of calming down this blood, he kills the perhekehuna on top of it, until he kills on top or in close proximity to that blood, Tishin ve'arba'a ribo, 94 ten thousands, that's 940,000 Jews, and the blood still doesn't stop boiling and bubbling. Says Nevuzaradan, there's really no way of handling this. Karav he comes close to the blood, and you have to imagine putting the blood imagery into full effect. He has blood in his eyes. If this blood hasn't stopped boiling, the prophecy isn't done. I still have opportunity. Perhaps it's still my responsibility. Maybe he's feeling almost like a godlike messenger. He's killing in order to stop the bubbling of that blood. He's killing in order to stop its boiling. He comes close to the blood and he says, Amar Zechariah, Zechariah. He exclaims, Zechariah, Zechariah. Tobim shebahem ibaditim. I made lost 
the great ones, the best of your nation, the rabbis, the young uh, school children, the, uh, the, train, the kohanim in training, I've killed anything and everything I could, 940,000 individuals beyond that. Nihalecha, is it uh, good in your eyes? That I should kill the entirety of this nation? Maybe that's my, uh, my position now. Maybe that's my responsibility to just get rid of everyone, to end this nation for once and for all. Maybe that's the sign I'm getting. Miad nah. Immediately that blood stops. God as it is and as it were is not interested in the entirety of Am Yisrael being destroyed. He intervenes, you'd imagine, in this context and stops the boiling of the blood. Says the Gemara, the aftermath of this story, although terrible, although heart-wrenching with regards to what Nivuzaradan does, aside from destroying the Mikdash, killing the important people, Nivuzaradan has introspective thoughts. Amar, he thinks to himself, Mahem shelo ibedu ela nefesh kach, he says, if Am Yisrael, the 940,000 plus the young children, plus the Tamideh Hachamim, and so forth, if for them all these people's lives were lost for only one killing, the killing of Zechariah Hanavi, Zechariah Kohen Gadol, if it was one person that they killed, that in turn this was their retribution, this was how they were paid back. First himself in third person, that person, look at all the people that I killed. What's going to be my aftermath? I was talking with Jeffrey about this before the class. The way I envision this is there's a perspective shift. Whereas initially he saw himself, it would appear, as if he was God's messenger. He saw a certain fiercity and, fear, and ability to go after them. And he sees only inspiration and the blood continuing to bubble. Once it stops, it's boiling. Once he takes stock of what he did, there's a certain pang of regret and almost guilt. And he sees it perhaps as maybe that's what needed to happen. But can you imagine I'm the one who did it? Do you realize what just took place? Yes, I played the role of a messenger of God, but did it need to be me? And if this is the God that they have, who has this way of affecting people who perhaps set wrong X, can you imagine what's going to be the case for me? Arak, he escapes. Shadar portita lebete. He sends a sava'a, a clear, um, uh, um, uh, what's it called? Uh, not dowry, uh, will to his home dictating what to do with all his possessions because he's off the scene. He won't be seen again by his family. And he becomes a convert. He converts to Judaism. This is the first of what the Gemara will describe as several other circumstances where really some of the most evil people in our history, in the eyes of the rabbis, in their historical consciousness and memory, they became Jews or at the very least they changed their way and saw the light in doing positively. What lies at the core of all these descriptions, uh, the reality notwithstanding, is the rabbinic vision, is the Jewish vision that in all evil there is a spark, there's a dimension of positivity. It's like Harambam writes with regards to famous words of Harambam in the context of, uh, of Gerushim. Harambam questions the Gemara in Masechet Kiddushin and elsewhere that if a person is withholding giving a get to his wife, uh, there are ways of forcing, coercing that individual until they say, I want to. Says Harambam, that's a get me'use, that's a forced get. 
you can't give a divorce document under duress, says Harambam, you have to understand the circumstance. Everyone, like the Gemara says, wants to fulfill divrei hachamim. Everyone wants to do the right thing. What do you mean? I don't want to do the right thing. I don't want to... But we have this thing called yeser hara. We have life. We have the filth and the distractions of, exist, of existence, which have this way of blurring our proper vision. It's when we just parse it away. It's when we push it out of the way that our true self, so to speak, shines forth. It's as a result in this Gemara and elsewhere that the rabbis envision even those who are most evil. Yeah, that's what encases their true inner self. But when you took away, when you were able to, to sift through all that external damage and collateral realities that took place to them over the course of their life, you'll find in them, whether they're Jewish or not, some sort of spark of positivity. Says the Gemara onward, Tanura Banan, here's the others about whom we have such sorts of traditions. Naaman. Naaman was the uh, general of sorts for Aram during the time of Elisha. Elisha aids him in curing his Sarat. And Naaman, so impressed, we talked about him at the end of Perik Ben Sorer More. You might recall, he was so impressed by that, he converts. He converts in the eyes of the rabbis reading the Pesukim, not to be a full, full-fledged Ger Sedek, but rather what's called a Ger Toshav. A Ger Toshav, the Gemara in Masechet Avodah Zarah, has a mahloket, what the real definition is. Either it's an individual who just accepts upon themselves, again, a non-Jew, not to do Avodah Zarah, that's one, one angle. Alternatively, a Ger Toshav accepts all the seven misvot B'nai Noah which of course we talked about at the end of that perik as well, uh, the f- seven, we call them Noahide laws. So one of those two, that's who Naaman was. Again, Naaman was a foe of Am Yisrael. He was a general of Aram who was against us during this time period. Nonetheless, says the Gemara, Naaman, Ger Toshav Haya. There was his spark of positivity, of uh, proper direction. Nebuzaradan, the Nebuzaradan that we talked about. Ger Sedek Haya, he was a full-fledged convert. Miben, okay, period, Haya. Mibene banav shel Sisera. Sisera was the foe, was the enemy during the time of Ya'el, of Barak, the beginning of Sefer Shofetim. Uh, Sisera was, I mean, he ultimately speaking is killed um, by, by, uh, by Ya'el, but uh, not, not one of our positive uh, uh, enemies in our existence. His descendants, his great grandchildren, it sounds like, Lamedu Torah Yerushalayim, or Limedu Torah Yerushalayim. They study Torah in Yerushalayim. There's another Nosach that Rabbeinu Nisim Gaon has in his commentary to Masech Berachot, and he says, and they were, or he was, Rabbi Akiva. There's a rabbinic tradition that Rabbi Akiva, whom we know from specific Midrashim, was a convert. He was a descendant, not just Heke, a convert. He was a convert and he was a descendant of Sisra, which of course will prompt the question, what character traits, what connectedness, what tikkun does Rabbi Akiva affect with regards to his origins as Sisra? Separate conversation for another time, but that's who we're dealing with regards to this. Sanheriv, Sanheriv we've been talking about. He starts the destruction. He exiles the ten shevatim. Nebuzarada, Nebuchadnezzar finished the job, but what about Sanheriv? Limedu Torah Barabim. They taught Torah publicly. Uman Ninhu, who were those descendants and great-grandchildren of, of Sanheriv, who taught Torah, Shema'ya ve'avtalyon. Shema'ya and Avtalion are very important individuals. They were Nasi and Avbetin, 
uh, during the time period of what we call the Zugot. They were, for all intents and purposes, the teachers of Rabbi Akiva. Shema'ayan Avtalyon are very important with regards to our oral tradition. Amazingly, they were converts. Were they themselves converts or they were descendants of converts? Not fully clear. Harambam writes that they themselves were converts, which in turn uh, provokes a question to some of the mefarshim. A convert can't have an authoritative position. That's the halakha. He can't have a misra. Misra is an authoritative position. How do you define that? Of course, that's an important question to have. It's in the context of rabbinics. There's always a question, can a convert be a rabbi? It would appear that he can't be. As a result, how were they appointed... Um, how are they appointed if they're not Mikere Vahecha, if they're not from your nation, rather they're converts to these highest positions, Nasi and Azbetin, during their time period? This is a question that's posed in Perek Aleph of Perke Avot, of Masechet Avot, Mishnah Yod, by Rashpatz, most famously. Rashpatz is Rabbi Shimon ben Semah Duran. He opposes this question specifically on Harambam's approach that Shma'ayan Avtalion were first generation converts. His suggestion is this idea of not appointing them to authoritative positions is specifically because we have better people for those positions. It's a little bit embarrassing for us. You have the convert and you can't have the 10th generation uh, Jew or rabbi or whatever it is. And as a result, if Shema'ayan Avtalion were above, were heads and heels above everyone else, so they were able to be appointed. It's not a prohibition to the extent that you can't do this. It's a rabbinic mandate to set forth a certain precedence to keep the honor, the glory of the nation in place which, of course, adds to this conversation for another occasion. The, the question as well, you see, the reason that in the context of rabbinics, one of the, one of the major reasons that we don't have women rabbis is for the same, the same, same purpose. Harambam, quoting from Talmud Yerushalmi, has that som tasim alecha melech, melech velo malka, vechen kol mesimot bemashma. You can only place upon yourself in an authoritative position, sirara, ahu, a man and not a woman. Uh, so says Harambam, by extension, quoting from Talmud Yerushalmi, not only kingship, but all other important positions, just like the convert. Well, that uh, provokes the question, first and foremost, does that mean that a woman can't be involved in anything, quote-unquote, in the rabbinic domain? Rav Moshe Feinstein was asked this question, could a woman be a mashkiach? Well, she doesn't have a long beard, he likens. She doesn't sit on the bed. No, I'm just kidding. It says, uh, Rav Moshe Feinstein, he deals with this, and he questions whether a mashkiach is considered an authoritative position, and he basically angles it as follows. He says, if there's someone on top of them, meaning in terms of authority, then they're not the reigning supreme, and that's not considered serara, even according to Rambam's problem. It's for that reason that uh, some schools, some synagogues even, have women on their board. How could you have a woman on the board? The answer is, if we're dealing with, in this circumstance, uh, almost a democratic, uh, far from it, from involvement in my history, but if it's almost a, a democratic position that there's checks and balances, so then it's permissible for that for a woman to be involved. It was by extension when gold de Meir was appointed the Prime Minister of Israel. So one of the students, this is reported in one of the books of Rabbi Shechter, asked Rabbi Salvechik, is this permitted? So according to Harambam, Tosafot, Masechet Yivamot has a difference. Is it permitted? He says, is that really the biggest of our issues right now? Apparently he didn't think Golda Meir was a very good politician. So the halakha is the furthest from it. What about the protection of our country and whatever? But anyway, that's the type of conversation you have to get into in this context as well, 
I'm talking theoretically, but if their position would be uh, held better, and so we're far from this at this at this juncture, that's for sure, but held better than, uh, than, than the men, so to speak, then it would be perhaps similar to Shema Ayan Avtalion. I say this all in theory, but food for thought nonetheless. Anyway, says the Gemara again, Shema Ayan Avtalion um, were those descendants of Sanhiriv who were Melamede Torah, Melamedim Torah Barabim, Mibene Banav Shel Haman. Limedu or Lamedu Torah Bibne Brak. Okay, I mean, we're really one by one. We got all our enemies, their descendants, the Gemara's reporting, were studiers of Torah. This one has questions uh, connected to it as well, because there is a, a Mechilta, there is words of a Midrash Halacha that says you can't accept converts from Amalek. Now, the Torah never explicitly says that. The Torah just says, kill all of Amalek. But, uh, which would pose another question. If you knew they were the descendants of Haman and you're accepting that Agagi, as the rabbis do, is from Amalek, how are you leaving them alive? Forget about letting them learn next year in the Midrash. You should be putting a bullet in their head. But beyond that, uh, there's the question of conversion. So there's questions about that, about whether Harambam maintains that position or not, whether this Gemara is a proof against the idea that you can't accept a convert from Amalek. The question that they were left alive is fascinating as well. The question is, in today's day and age, I say this in theory, in today's day and age, if you were somehow to determine this person is a descendant of Amalek, I don't know how you would do that. You have genealogical research, DNA, and so forth, and somehow you determine that. Are you killing them? This is a question that I know it's not so relevant, but the post scheme and the philosophers debate. I was like, would you actually kill them in such a circumstance? You perhaps would like, perhaps, perhaps would liken this to what Harambam writes about the Isur of going back to Egypt, if you recall. We talked about this a few months ago. The Torah has in three places in the eyes of the rabbis an Isur to return to Egypt. And yet, some of our greatest rabbis lived in Egypt. Harambam lived many years in Egypt. Radvaz, Rabbi David ben Zimra, spent many years in Egypt. I don't know, there any Egyptians in the room? People spend time in Egypt. One of the approaches to the matter is, we're talking about the culture and the society of Egypt that once was. Egypt today is so far and distant from it. As a result, perhaps the Amalek dimension then is different because the nation has been deteriorated with regards to their ideals and their metaphysical buildup with regards to evil, which of course the flip side would be, well, if you found someone who is objectively Amalek, metaphysical buildup with regards to evilness, Hitler, maybe you have to kill it. All right, all important and interesting questions to philosophize about. Says the Gemara onward, maybe I told you I wouldn't too much. Says the Gemara, and even from the descendants of Nebuchadnezzar, HaKadosh Baruch Hu wanted to, he had a will, he had a thought, to bring them under the wings of, or curtails of the Shekhinah, meaning to bring them over to Judaism. Amru Baruch the ministering angels turn to HaKadosh Baruch and they have a claim against him. Now the interesting thing is when the angels quote-unquote win and when they lose. We've learned several Gemarot where the angels lose. They have a claim. Uh, why give the Torah to Am Yisrael? Give it to others. What's, what, what's, give it to us. Uh, why are you redeeming them from Egypt? They're no better than the the Egyptians, of course, into those situations, God knocks them down. Over here, he's going to give in. Yes, Rabbi. He may have been associated. Yes. Okay. So maybe that's why. That's why we're going to bring them in. Maybe that's why he had the power actually to, to destroy us. But we're not going to bring them in. 
you'll see, or his descendants. Says the Gemara, Amru Malachi Asharet Lefnei Hakadosh Baruch Hu Bono Shel Olam Mishehirif Et Betecha Vesarafet Techalecha Tachnis Tachat Kanfei Hashechina. God, there's a certain limit to this. I know you said there's the spark of sanctity and positivity in every soul, but come on, this person encased himself so much so he destroyed your house, he uh, uh, he plummeted your uh, the surrounding area. I mean, come on, he. That's what the Pasuk perhaps is referencing when it says, Ripinu et Bavel velonir pata. The Pasuk says, Ripinu milashon refuah, the rabbis are reading it. We brought forth, or we wanted to bring forth, God speaking, so to, as it were, um, a, a cure, a remedy for Bavel, meaning to accept the descendants, to bring in the descendants of Nebuchadnezzar, lonir pata. But it didn't, didn't work out. Weren't able to pull it off. Ula Amar says, Ula, no, 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 it's not what it's referring to that Pasuk. You want to know what it's referring to that Pasuk? There's other issues with Bavil. Not only the descendants of Nebuchadnezzar, but think about our day. Think about the rotten things in our day. And you have to imagine Ula is saying this with a big smile on his face. At least I do. He says, I'm sorry. Ula first says, yeah, that's Nebuchadnezzar. It's a reference. Rabbi Shemuel bar Nachmeni Amar. This is the one I say with a big smile. That wasn't a reference to Nebuchadnezzar that we banned or we blocked off his descendants from returning or coming to Judaism. You want to know what it's referring to? It's these rotten rivers. They have such bitter water. That's what the Pazuk says. So to speak, God was going to cure the waters of Bavel, but he left them bitter. And furthermore, interpreted the Pasuk as referring to the palm trees of Bavil that they don't bring forth. They, they, they're right next to a bitter river, which means to say that, again, I see it with a smile on his face. He says, you know, Bavil never really fully rebounded. Bavil were the ones who knocked us out back then. We're still dealing with the bitter aftermath hundreds and thousands of years later. In our time, time, and, uh, time period and age, uh, says Rabbi Shmuel bar Nachmeni, don't just imagine Nebuchadnezzar, understand the reverberations until today. Amar Ula, Ula now imagining what happened uh, furthermore in the destruction of the Mikdash in the uh, leading up to it. So we talked about really up until and including the destruction. What about leading up to it? What brought Nebuzaradan to Yerushalayim? What convinced Nebuchadnezzar that he'd be able to destroy the Mikdash? Says Ula, Amar Ula, Amon Umoav, Shiveve Bisha Yerushalayim Havu. They were, Shiveve means neighbors, Bish. Bish means bad in, in Aramaic. They were bad neighbors. They were evil neighbors to us. They heard our prophets who were prophesying they were predicting the destruction of Jerusalem. Did they actually hear it from the prophet? I think not, but I think if you have a neighbor in, this, in our neighborhood and the rabbis and the leaders of the community keep telling us one thing or another and it becomes the buzz of the town, all the surrounding neighbors hear about it as well. So Amon and Moab were imagining as the neighbors of Eris Israel, and they're hearing. Everybody's talking about destruction. Their leaders keep preaching to them that they're messing things up, they've got they've run askew, and there's gonna be destruction. Shadhu they send to the strength of that time period. Melech Bavil, Nebuchadnezzar, Shalhud Nebuchadnezzar, they send a message to Nebuchadnezzar and they say to him, Pok Veta, go out and come. That's an opportune time. 
Momentum is in your favor. You can handle these guys. You can destroy their temple. Amar responds, Nebuchadnezzar, in the memory of Ula, Mistafina, I'm nervous, I'm scared. Dela li avdu li avdu I'm nervous, I'm scared that they're going to do to me as they did to the original ones. He's referring to Sanheriv. Sanheriv, who attempted to capture Jerusalem, who thought it was such a small task, who slept the night and then was wiped out, as we read about in the Gemara, as we know from the Pesukim in, in, in Navi. So the description then is, Nebuchadnezzar says, I'm nervous, I'll make it a little bit more even palpable than the eyes of the rabbis. Nebuchadnezzar, again, over 150 years old at this time, has to be, was part of the army of Sanhariv. He's one of the five or nine remaining souls, 14 remaining souls. I don't want that to happen to my troops and to me again. I'm a little bit nervous. Shalhule, they respond, that's Amon and Moab to Nebuchadnezzar. And here we have lots of dirashot from Pesukim. Ki en ha'ish beveto. You should know that the man is not in his home. Halach baderech merachok. He went on a long journey. It's a reference. Ve'en ish ela ha'kadosh baruchu shene'emar hanonai ish milchama. So it's a reference of ish, so to speak, quote-unquote man, Reference to God, Adonai Ishmael Hama. He's not in his home. The reference then is Amon and Moab say, no, what we're understanding is that their God has abandoned his home. He's no longer present in the Mikdash in the same way. He's not there to defend it any longer. So of course, brings us back to that description from yesterday where Nebuzaradan is a little bit nervous and he's told, no, 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 you're just going to be destroying the destroyed home. In other words, I already abandoned it. He's not there. He's not interested in this any longer. Shalach lehu, he responds to them to Amon and Moab, this is Nebuchadnezzar, Melech Bavel. He sends back to them, Bekarivahu. He says he may have left his home, but he's still nearby. He'll still defend against the oncoming enemies. Ve'aten, he'll come, he'll, he'll defend. Shalchules and sends back Amon and Moab. No, that's not what we're understanding, that's not what we're hearing. Halach baderech merachok, the last words in the Pasuk over there, that he got, went on a distant journey. He's no longer around, there's no interest in this any longer. Of course, a reference to God. So Nebuchadnezzar is getting a little bit more strengthened with regards to his mindset. Shalach lehu, he says, but I'm still not there. I still have it lehu sadikeh, they have righteous ones. Deba'u rahameh. Uh, they, he says that they have righteous ones who will they'll beseech mercy, they'll pray, they'll turn to God, and they'll bring him down, they'll bring him to defending against me. So even if he, with the capital H, has already left, he has righteous remainders over here and they'll bring him back. They send back Amon and Moab to Nebuchadnezzar. No, it's not so, Nebuchadnezzar. He took with him that uh, silver. And the silver that's referring to, and the silver that's referred to being taken with him, meaning vanished from the nation, meaning we don't have many Talmidei Hachamim and righteous people amongst our, amidst, in our midst any longer at the time of destruction. So they say back, they don't have that because the Pasuk says he took the silver with him, the Pasuk describing. Um, the redemption from uh, Egypt uh, in this interpretation talks about the 15th. 
15th, of course, is the day on which we left Egypt. That's the 15th of Nisan. And the Pasuk says, I brought with me the kasif, the kasif, the, the silver. The silver is the righteous ones from Am Yisrael. In turn, the kasif that's being referred to over here is the righteous ones. He left with the righteous ones. They're not around any longer. He sends back to them, Hadre, even though the righteous ones are not there, even though God is not fully present, he's not interested. I don't know. I know these people, they have this way of never being fully repressed. Hadre They're wicked ones. Uh, the ones who aren't following Torah Mitzvot, they'll do Teshuvah. And as a result of doing that, they'll pray to God, and they'll bring him and they'll smother me as a result. The second I get closer to this Mikdash, to this Hechal, they're going to inspire themselves, bring back God to defend them. It's not so. The Pasuk says that on the day of Kese, he'll come to his home, and kesel is a mansion emar ba kesel yom hagenu. The word kesel they're envisioning as a time. Pasuk says tikuba chodesh shofar ba kesel yom hagenu. Unlike the derasha we saw masechet roshana over here, the gemara says the word kesel means a time on the, the time of celebration. That's where you sound the shofar. And in turn, when the pasuk refers to the time, there's a set time for this destruction. You guys have this because there's going to be seventy years of exile that was set in place. He'll return after those seventy years. This is the rabbinic vision that everybody was aware of these 70 years. Of course, it's the vision of Masechet Megillah, Ahashverosh, making a mistake with regards to those 70 years. Everyone had this vision of the 70 years. So Amon and Moab say, no, no, we know their prophets are telling them there's a set time for return. You have opportunity right now. Shalach lehu, he say, right, sends back. All right, I'm getting there. I'm understanding the vision. I'm getting inspired and strengthened, says Nebuchadnezzar to Amon and Moab. However... Still not the right timing. You know, he's still uh, dragging his feet. He says, Sitavahu. It's the staff. It's the autumn and fall time. Vilamasina de'ate. And I can't come. Mitalga. Switch the taf with the sheen. Shelek. Snow. Umimitra. Matar is rain. It's rainy. It's snowy. For me to advance with my troops. It's just going to be too difficult. So give me a little bit of time. Shalhule. They respond to him. Ta ashina de Tura come at the teeth of the mountains, meaning protect yourself from the bottom of the mountains. It's a mountainous range upon entrance into Israel. They're saying to him, if you do it right from Bavil, you'll be protected by the mountains. Yeah, there'll be some slush on the ground, but you won't really get hit with the difficult terrain of, of, of uh, snow and uh, water. Shene Imar, as the Pasuk perhaps is referring to, Shilhukar Moshel Eretz Misela Midbara Elhar. The pasuk describes advancing misela um, midbara somehow connect somehow protected by the uh, the strong boulders along the way. It's a description of how Nebuchadnezzar could and would advance without getting knocked out by the terrain. Of course, we know this from. Recent war experiences, just over a hundred years, and I described, at least I learned it in school, how there were losses at war in World War I because of not being well aware and acquainted. You'll be able to help me with this, I'm sure, Dave. Being well acquainted with the terrain. So it was the vision, it was the fear of Nebuchadnezzar, and as a result, he's told, you can handle this. As it says, says the Gemara, Shalach lehu, he's still not done, he's still not prepared. I'atina let li duchta diativna be. If I come... All right, I still have another strategic issue. Where am I going to camp and camp? Where am I going to put my troops? 
I don't have a duchta, a place, diyativnabe, where I'll be able to sit, to dwell. Where are we going to sleep? Where are we going to stop and get food and things? Shalhule, they respond, Amone Moavna, we know the area. There is kivrot, kevarot shelahen, the burial plots of this nation, and they're dignified in people, uh, which is in caves, me'ulin mipaltarin shelcha is more beautiful, more expansive than your palaces and mansions. Which means to say you'll just take respite, you'll take protection in their caves of their burial, burial tombs, uh, the, the, the tomb areas. Dichtiv, as the Pasuk says, The time will come when you're going to, they will take out the bones of the kings of Yehuda, and the bones of his ministers, the bones of the priests, and the prophets' bones, even the bones of those who dwelled and lived in Yerushalayim, and so far, so the Pasuk describes how they're going to take out all the bones. Why are you taking out all the bones? According to our Midrash, you're taking out all the bones. So Nebuchadnezzar could use that those places for hanging out, for strategic planning. I mean, it has a little bit of a reminiscence for me of when you hear about what Nazi Germany did with the dwelling places of the Jews, even with cemeteries of the Jews. They reappropriated the tombstones, t- turned them into stones, rocks for building, building uh, roads and so forth. It's literally taking perhaps the most humanistic dimension of existence, the burial plot, just leave them to be there. They're not affecting anything negative at this juncture, but nonetheless, if it helps us in war, if it helps us in advancing to knock out those very same people, so let's take advantage of it. That's what, in the eyes of the rabbis, took place at that time. Amar Lerav Nachman Haq says the Gemara beginning another issue. Now that we talked about destruction, let's end the class today, let's begin the conversation with, let's talk about, well, how this is now going to bring us to redemption. Do you know, did you ever hear when will come the son of the fallen? Who's the son of the fallen? He says, The response of Rabbi Yitzhak to Rav Nachman is, I'd love to answer your question whether I know, whether I heard, but who's the son of the fallen? He says, it's the uh, Messiah. He says, Mashiach bar karitle? He says, you call the Messiah, you call Mashiach the son of the fallen? If anything, he's the one who's, uh, who's building up. Amar le'in, he says, yeah, of course. Dichtiv, bayomahu, the description of the Navi is that on that day, akim et sukat David hanofelet. The Pasuk says, on that day, I will, re- I will build up, I will uh, erect the sukkah, the uh, dwelling place, the uh, sukkah of Bet David, of course a reference to kingship, of monarchy, and if we're envisioning as we do, Mashiach has descended from David, so it's on that day, says God, I'm going to rebuild Malchut through this Mashiach, it means it's fallen, and in turn he's going to be the one who picks it up. 
As a result, I refer to Mashiach as the son of the fallen. It's from the monarchy whose sukkah, whose strength, whose dwelling abode has fallen. He's going to bring it back up. Amar le, the response of Rabbi Yitzchai says, oh, that's what you wanted to know, Rav Nachman? You want to know about when Mashiach is coming? I'll help you out with that. Amar Biohanan, hache Amar Biohanan. This is what I heard from Biohanan. Dor sheben David babo, the generation within which Mashiach ben David, the son, descendant of David, will arrive in the scholars, the righteous and knowledgeable ones, will be far and in between. They'll be me'at, very little. The hasha'ar and everyone else in the nation of Yisrael, kalot their eyes are going to be diminished and hurt by sorrow and agony. Sarot rabot, ugzerot kashot, mithadeshot, and there'll be all sorts of difficulties and sufferings and uh, 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 hard times by the time one comes about and goes the next one will arrive in other words I don't have the exact time period I'm not able to give you the absolute coordinate but I could describe to you the period that leads up to redemption it's a time period of trials and tribulations difficulties and sorrows that's the door Shibin David Babo Baruch Adonai Amen. Amen.